0: I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard clissel vasey His background is different to many people that we've had on the podcast, uh, and I'm sure he'll explain more as we go through the show, Um, but um, I think, again... That difference brings a different perspective to the way that he has delivered change and transformation. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Richard. Hi, Richard, and thanks for joining us today. Um, I I love the fact that we have people um, on this podcast from from such a vast array of backgrounds, and I'm delighted that you have been able to join us today because I don't believe that we've had anyone on previously that's got such a sort of sales and marketing type background and then market research background that you so it'd be really interesting to to hear more about your experiences as we progress Uh, but first do you you just want to give us a a brief overview of your experience to date so that we
1: can uh, put put the future conversation into context yes definitely Tony good afternoon so I'm Richard Clissol-Basey but people call me Richard CB and my career has covered sort of three chunks Um, but the first chunk was working, as you said, in sales and marketing roles for businesses like Mars. I actually started in, um, in the motor industry for Rover Cars. I, I went through the milk round, for those of <laughs> that remember that, when you assume that you'd get a job. So I applied for car companies and beer companies and ended up in a car company. Um, I then moved into consulting mid-stage, and I did that because I thought, felt it was time to set up my own business. And I thought that time was running out. So I set up my own consultancy and I then ended up joining a boutique consultancy after that. Um, again, working in sales and marketing, but this time advising some of the sort of biggest brands around the world about growth, but also about sort of organisational capability. I first really got involved in transformation after I joined um, the insight industry. So I joined TNS. TNS was bought by Kantar. Um, and quite quickly, I moved from a sort of a specialist uh, retail marketing role into organisational change because I sort of lost the will to live because the company was this huge business, networked across the world. Everybody did things in different ways. Some bits of it were brilliant, lots of it weren't. And I, there was a new chief strategy officer, and I just threw my name in the ring and said, I can help. And since then, that, that industry is an industry that's has gone through massive change. So I've been involved yeah. in restructures and changing the, the, the role of the organisation from sort of research to, to, to consultancy analytics, bringing in multiple data flows, it's, it's been
0: a, a sort of whirlwind. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I think, as, as you know, I, I got involved in, in one of the uh, group companies um, um, in, in the same group. And uh, yeah, there's that, that background of being, being um, uh, growing through lots and lots of mergers and acquisitions globally um create so many interesting cultures and, and so many interesting um, challenges when you when you come into look at that integration piece but uh, we maybe touch on that later because I'm I'm quite keen just to explore your your thinking around that because um, I, I I believe that over the coming 12-18 months as as we come out of COVID I think there'll be lots of merged acquisitions. So um, it'd be interesting to get your your thoughts on, on that and your experiences of have been involved in an organisation that's done lots of M&A
1: activity. Definitely. It was interesting. When I I joined TNS originally, I thought, this is a huge business. I'm sort of fine now. We'll we'll buy things. And then 10 minutes later, we were bought. And then lots of other, you know, lots of stuff. I ended up buying supporting the acquisition of an analytics business quite recently. And it just never stopped.
0: So we we, we always start this uh, podcast off with the same question. Um, so how do you define transformation? And this this feels like
1: an exam question because it's been answered <laughs> what, 42 times before or something. Gotcha. So I've got two lenses, I guess, which describe it for me. The first is, and I typically think business transformation. So I think transformation is something that impacts multiple functions in an organisation. So they need to evolve together or to, to create something new. The, the bigger sort of factor, I think, is um the vision for the business that you are looking to deliver is significantly different from where the current business is. Ooh. So we're not looking at some sort of evolution, which is incremental. It is a shift of sort of dramatic proportions in terms of when you look at the end point versus the beginning point. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and, and
0: in terms of your background, then, what, what's the biggest transformation
1: you've been involved in, just you know, expanding what you've just said? So the, so as I said, worked in Kanta for a number of years, the, when I joined the organization, it was a research business um, that commissioned survey-based research. Um, we basically, I uh, had moved the, bit, the organization, moved to position where today, the, and this is the Insights Division of Kanta, Kanta is a huge business, this is sort of the $2 billion chunk, a business which has shifted from, from research to consultancy, um to knowing about you know sample sizes and, and sort of a functional expertise to a very client-centric um, we know about the challenges the clients have around marketing and innovation and customer experience And um, alongside that has come a shift from sort of very manual processes to technology um, first of all technology driving uh, replacing manual processes and delivering uh, efficiencies and speed but then whole, whole approaches delivering work being put into systems Um, and then sort of the two other changes one is from sort of single data sources to multiple data sources and hardcore analytics I mean really clever smart stuff and then a shift from sort of tolerating clients to being very client focused I mean really obsessive Um, and that's a a shift which has taken place in many different countries around the world so I think I've worked face-to-face in 30 countries, but with another sort of 40. Um, and of course, all of those businesses are different starting points.
0: Yeah. And, and um, I know from, from my experience with, with the group company, um, the clients could be local clients, but there, a lot of them are global clients that have got those multiple touch points and getting some consistency and approach was always a challenge. Is that what you, is, were you experiencing that as well? And what, and what did you do to start to embed that
1: sort of consistent approach? Um, I mean, that's interesting. One of the, probably my first um, experience of true transformation from a central role was was the recognition that the organisation actually was working as a, as a networked global business rather than having, you know, one approach, I mean, one approach to PowerPoint, you know, one, one, one approach to how we describe um, client organisations. So, so that big shift came through a, a consistent client engagement and delivery model. So this is how we talk to clients. This is how we think about their problems. This is how we um, work out what we need to do for them. And this is how the end deliverables are presented. And took that to seventy countries globally. And, and, and interestingly, it came with a new. It came with a, a new CEO. Um, it came with a huge amount of impetus. So you know, a bit of urgency. Um, and we actually launched it to sort of the 13 countries that dominated the, the sales of the world in something like uh, 14 weeks. And that's something like 36 launch events, 14 weeks, three and a half thousand people retrained on this new way of working. And then two years worth of pushing to really build it in. And, and that interestingly, that was the that shift. Was a was a very big starting point. To, do you know what we're going to be consistent around a lot of other things. So you need a you need a platform. That you? you need something which sort of yeah. sets the tone that you can yeah. then build off.
0: Yeah, and, and but I think it's interesting your approach that you've taken though. And let's get get some momentum going really quickly get that sort of real clarity about what we're trying to do. Yeah, and then let's have a tale of embedding it. I yeah. think all too often. We uh, organisations spend too long in that planning phase, and, and it's almost reverse. It, it's it's we spent, uh, uh, uh we have like a long tail up front to plan it, and so we know the nth degree of what we're going to do, and then we 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 we, we try to deliver it really really quickly. And and I find that sort of ability to uh, build something or get get the momentum and going, and then um, systematically look to improve and embed and 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 adapt in an agile way ends up delivering the the, the, the uh, a much higher level of returns
1: far quicker than doing it the other way. Yes, as long as like so I completely agree with you, as long as what you're delivering on the first iteration is good enough to get by. Yeah. Good enough to do yeah. the impact. Yeah. No,
0: um, I yeah, 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 I agree with that. Yeah, it's it's um, you, you don't don't just go flying off and and, and shooting from the hip. Absolutely, but uh, but don't spend too much time trying
1: to plan the end to, to the nth degree is is, is probably an message. But I think I think you also find when you do when you do that through that first iteration, you learn what different people in your organization then need, so you yeah. you can work out your plan because people are telling you what they need, or you see where the leaders are lacking the skill set, or you realize there's a hole and you miss something, or you realize that you're going to need to bring this to life through very real examples so you start working with a particular client or organisation to case study it so you yeah. you learn through that process don't you I think yeah it's, and, and, it, and it starts as you say having that clear vision of
0: what what you want the end point to be yeah you know you, you, you're less concerned about how you're going to get from A to B but as long as you've got the clarity about what you want B to look like or to, to, to feel like then you can engage people and get them involved in in helping you to get from A to B kind.
1: Yes, and this is where I think we completely agree in that. Um, so you described, this is, what we look, this is what it's going to look like, this is what it's going to feel like. It's not, there are four strategic drivers on a PowerPoint slide. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, as, as, an, as someone in the team, whatever your job is, you've got to be able to get what it's going to be like for you in the future and what the benefits are and how it's going to work. And I, I feel like that's sometimes, sometimes you don't know enough to really create as much as that as you really need or other times businesses just don't push that hard. And then you end up with a, a fluffy vision which people don't really buy. Yeah, I agree.
0: So you talk a lot about people-driven change. In, in fact, I think that's your
1: website address. So uh, tell me more about what you mean. Yes, certainly, and, and it's, it's my website address. I'm not actually selling anything. It's something that I've been banging on about because I I sort of truly believe it. And I've and I, having listened to a number of these podcasts and we've spoken a number of times, um, and I guess probably the world that we've grown up in, um, I, I've seen hierarchical management try and push change to organisations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've all seen very smart people get into a room and design something which they think is amazing and push it through an organisation. And it, it just doesn't work. So, so my belief is that um, if you involve people, if they participate in design, the testing, the piloting and the implementation of what you're doing, um, you build better solutions you get to better answers and people are more likely to get behind better answers. And if simultaneously you work to engage and communicate with a broader population, and this isn't just, you know, an email update, this is actually get them really thinking about that future that you are describing and keep them abreast of the changes and bring them into the problems that you're, you're, you're focusing on. And um, you, you build advocacy, you build ownership of the change, you build a momentum about what's gonna happen in the future. Um, and therefore, rather than pushing something through the business, the business sort of picks it up and starts to run with it, and you can feel an energy change. And it's something I've experienced launching different things—you know, from a finance tool to a, you know, to a whole new operating model. And um, there's an energy around what you're trying to achieve, and that, thats that's how I describe people's different change.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's far easier um, helping people to pull something into a business, isn't it? Than trying to push it in, and 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 if you if you can get that dynamic where people are pulling it in because they want it and they believe in it, 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 it
1: it's it's a damn sight easier. And I don't know about you, but I, I've I have experienced that moment when you're standing in front of a smart young a smart crowd, and you're explaining where we're going and what we're going to do, and someone asks you that question because they don't believe you or they are doubting how you're going to do it, and they're probably right because you know they know more than you because they're closer to how stuff works. Um yeah. So the other thing about this approach is, you know, observation of how people work is so key because it's not the same as a job spec. It's not the same as what the board director thinks or even the line manager thinks. Yeah. Um, so I think I, I've had too many in my sort of former years, critical moments where someone has sort of pushed back on something I've been trying to achieve. And they've just been right. Yeah. So, so avoid that there's a sort of self-correcting mechanism of getting people to participate as you go along, but without overwhelming the organisation, it can't be done in, in a way which is, you know, administrative and, you know, workshops every day. Yeah. but It's interesting, actually. You, you, you just uh,
0: reminded me of a, a, a workshop that we ran that I was involved in a couple of years ago, but that, that exactly what you just described um, happened. Um, and um, we're, we're talking about what the future is going to look like, what we're going to do. And, and, and this, um, uh, this, this lady in the back sort of put her hand up and said, Can I ask you a question? And, and, and she was absolutely superb at really sort of honing in on an issue that we didn't know the answer to. Um, um, oh, we probably we, we, we had an inkling, but we didn't know the full answer to. Um, and it was the one question that you were like, don't ask me that question. <laughs> Love it. Um, but it, it was it, we were fortunate and, and, and got a, a bit of a get out of jail card. Um, in so much because we'd taken people on that journey, and, there was, uh, and and it was much more sort of a collegiate type of approach rather than us doing it to them or us driving it in. Um, other people within the, in, within the room, not, not part of the, the sort of program leadership team, but other stakeholders started answering the question. So, so we just let, let the conversation flow. And, and, and off the back of that conversation, we got much clearer about what we were trying to do and
1: what we needed to do than we had before we went into the workshop. But that's absolutely the key, isn't it? Is you're not pushing it on people, you're you're going on a journey with them. So you didn't go, no, you're wrong. Um Yeah, I've experienced something similar where with a fantastic colleague of mine, we created a new operating model for an organisation. It was really smart. We were really pleased. We were putting it in front of the the members of the leadership teams who hadn't been involved in its development so far. And and we were pitching it as a, we'd like your input into something. But really we did want them to say yes. Um, And someone just stood up and said, I just don't get it. And if you're going to present it like that, we should just give up because it's too complicated. and it was one of those critical moments where you can either argue or you can listen. And, you know, after the punch on the face, is sort of ricocheted off. It's like, yeah, you know what? You're probably right. But are you arguing about what we've created? No. So you're arguing around how we presented it. Fantastic. We can work on that. Yeah. Um, so it's how you, how you, in the way that you described it, it's how you involve people so that they feel they can tell you that. Because if, if that woman hadn't asked that question of you, you'd still have a gaping hole yeah no absolutely yeah you you want people to open up to you
0: you want people to challenge you um, and and I think that's um, it's, it's a lesson I learned very early on that in any briefing or in any communication, start it off saying this is this is open to debate this is all we want you to ask questions we want you to challenge back because we don't have all the answers and that is almost gives you that get out of jail
1: card. Because you say, we don't have all the answers. We want, to, we, we want your involvement. And, and I think that evolves through a process. So you know, there's a point when you have nailed stuff down. So you shift the conversation to how do we communicate this or how do we implement this? But when you're happy that you have got the right input from people. Um, but I think what's also key is that you have the right people in the room. So quite often you, you can't have that conversation well enough unless you've got the guy from IT or Ops or the woman from strategic sales or whatever it is together because people can't see even the questions when they're just sitting in their silos, but also having people from you know, in different stages of the career and different levels in the organisation. Because very often it's, it's, it's the person who's either doing the work behind the scenes or to, talking to the client, who experiences something that you just don't know about. Uh, what skills and experience
0: do you think is, uh, that, uh, have helped you in this sort of change and
1: transformation world that you picked up in that early stage of your career? Do you know, I, I've been incredibly lucky because as you say, I went into sales first and, and it was interesting, I am—I um, only just went into sales. I was looking at marketing, marketing seemed far more sexy. Um, I was working for a motor organisation. The sales director came up to me as I was reaching the end of my graduate training. He said, Richard, are you going to come and join the real men in sales or are you going to go into in <laughs> marketing? And this was a very <laughs> male-dominated culture 30-odd years ago. And I was quite simply too scared to say no. <laughs> so I've <after> joined <laughs> sales. Um, but I can honestly say that, and I've gone on to train sales and negotiations, strategic selling and account management and stuff. Um, that client focus, that selling focus, you know, the understanding and trying to resolve so much problems, that's been absolutely key internally and externally, definitely. As has, so I got involved very early on in something called category management, which is when retailers and suppliers started working together to to resolve how you sell stuff better through stores. And it's not not more of my brand, it's more of the the category. Um, And that was where Insight started to be used, not just to sell, but to understand and to position stuff for the shopper. So, you know, the ultimate customer. Um, So I got involved in the use of Insight to solve business problems very early on. Um, so that's again been incredibly helpful.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, I think, like you say, that that approach to putting you, putting yourself in the in the shoes of the customer, or in in our world now, putting yourself in the shoes of the the organisation, the people within the organisation that's being asked to change, is is, is it, it gives you that different perspective, doesn't it? Yes. You, know, you, 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 can have a, you can have a view on the world as the leaders that's driving in the change. But if you if you if you choose that perspective to say, how would I feel if I was the recipient of this change? It just
1: it just puts that completely different perspective on things. And just how they're feeling about it. I mean, I was involved in working with the big telecoms organizations when the iPhone arrived. And some of the big brands at the time, you know, we yeah. were as an organisation, we were asked to look at whether the iPhone would be successful because they were very, very sceptical um, and, and just being able to put yourself into their shoes to understand that they, they couldn't see it being successful because it wasn't in their interest yeah. and then how you reframe the conversation um, or the facts that you use or just to shift the mindsets and, and those where the mindset didn't shift, they're, they're not players anymore. The world is harsh, isn't it? Um, but I think on an organisation level, um, if you can't get your head around how the junior person who does this task 30 times a day is going to feel when you replace it with technology, you, you've got problems. Absolutely.
0: So just coming back to your MA and um, experience as well, uh, what, what are the key learnings that, that you can take from from the activities that you've undertaken in that mergers and
1: acquisition world? So I think there's a set of learnings from having it done to you, and a set of learnings from doing it. And I think the, um, the learnings from having it done to you um, are when you engage people in that process, even if the end point isn't necessarily good for everybody, it's, it's better. So honesty around what the future aim for the organization is and how the process is gonna work and what's likely to change. Um, and obviously you can't, you can't share everything because some of this stuff involves people and teams that are gonna go whatever. Um, but I've been in a situation where it's just been completely in the dark and the, you know, the, the organisation has just switched off. People just aren't engaged because they know it's going to be bad or they think it's going to be bad. And then I've been involved in acquisitions in where just tried to change that mindset to, here's where we're trying to go. Here's where we see the fit. Here's where there's some real strength. Here's some stuff we just don't understand. Oh, yeah. And by the way, there's some overlapping services. We're going to have to deal with that pretty quickly. Um, and I think that works, that works incredibly well, but the the, the building relationships with the organisations that you're bringing in as early as possible is, is incredibly key, I feel.
0: Yeah, and, and it, you touched on it again, um, I suppose that the same sort of messaging really is what we've, that we've been talking about already. It's it's looking at the impact that it's going to have on the individual and realising that their first thoughts will be, what does it mean to me? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's what's in it for me or what does it mean to me? And, and, and naturally you start to think, especially if you are being acquired, if you're a part of the organisation that's being acquired, that your job's at risk. So it's, it's what does it mean to me? Um, and, and, and you've got to overcome those, those questions. And sometimes you have the answers and often you
1: don't, but you've got, you can't just ignore it. You've got to confront it. But that's the same, isn't it, for every change or transformation initiative that we run. Ultimately, it comes down to an individual where something is going to be different or not. Um, And if it is going to be different, they're going to then have to embrace that change and go through some form of personal transition to do things differently, which is tough and exposes you. But um, but I think the other thing about um, acquisitions, I worked on um, a merger of two big organisations relatively recently that had been competing for years. They were then moved into the same group. And we realised that we needed to actually sort of, you know, just get over and pull the two businesses together. And through the process, whilst the organisations were doing very similar things, it was just different language. Mm-hmm. Um, and some things that looked like they were being doing it done in the same way, when you looked underneath the covers, they were being done very differently. Mm. And I think one of the, the skill sets that we need in transformation is you've got to be able to get under the bonnet. You know, you've got to be able to really uncover. Yeah, so for example, one of the, the language changes was, um, you know, the word deliver. Was being used differently within the two organizations and i actually set up a conversation at a board meeting between two board directors and i asked one to talk about delivery and the other to talk about delivery then i stopped them and said just explain what you mean and in that moment it's like one of those um uh, table of gloves moments there's a you, you probably know what i mean the uh, uh you know everybody realized around the room that this was a big shift that we were driving it wasn't just new process it was how people thought It'd be interesting just
0: to get your 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 perspective on when there was such a difference in just the language. How did you go about bringing those two organisations together into a consistent language? So I think there was three
1: big shifts. The first big shift was really close working with the boards because they these were people who were very close to their businesses. And it would have been easy to try and sort of mechanically fix stuff as you describe, but actually we needed to get to the leaders, you know, really closely, get them on board, get them on site, get them talking talk to each other. And they needed to be at the hub of everything. And um, the second thing was um, there were certain things that just needed to change for everybody. So rather than saying, we're going to do it their way or your way, we said, okay, we're going to evolve this into something different. Yeah. Um, and even though that something different was built up with the component parts of both, and, you know, it was launched very definitely something new. Um, and then the third thing was around culture and the culture. Um, and I think that was such a big shift. So we actually did a cultural assessment of the two organisations. And that really showed how things like hierarchy um, were just seen as so different in the organisations. You, you, could, you could, from the work that we did, you could sense the flashpoints that were going to come. So we focused very heavily on culture. We... Um, You know, know, we're very clear about the behaviours that were going to take us through to a new place and and make those behaviours hard things, not just a fluffy poster that goes on the wall. But, you know, these are the two or three things that are going to make a difference as as we work through this. And then, you know, we built culture and behavioural change very clearly into the, um, you know, the transformation of these two businesses because, you you know, it was an outcome that we needed, but also it was one of the things that motivated people to this new place.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, is so The uh, that, that, that cultural issue comes up time and time again. And uh, even though an organisations may have operated in the same industry, worked in very very similar ways, in very similar geographies, uh, when you when you go into each organisation, the culture is often very very different. Uh, I, I remember one of the earlier podcasts with uh, Ellie Holt and. Um, who did a merger of two big social housing organisations. She brought out that very very point. Um, Two housing organisations operating in the similar parts of London, grown at similar sort of rates, um, probably initially thought that the cultures cultures would have been similar, but when they went into them, they were quite different. And and creating a new culture for the new organisation was
1: the the bedrock on which they, they drove the merger together. Definitely. And interestingly, in this case, there were the two separate businesses were based both in, in London, but then there was one of the businesses that had a, a sort of a, an office based out of London, which was where the business originally evolved from. Mm-hmm. People had been there for many years and they, you know, they were part of this phenomenal industry business and were phenomenally proud. And they would always say, oh, we do things differently here. <laughs> um, and, I, and I knew that we got it right on launch day when I travelled to that office specifically. I mean, we, we made sure we launched across the three offices equally. Um, and I arrived at that office on you know, the morning of the launch, and it had turned to the new branding colours, and people were fully on side. And I, I literally, as I walked through the door, I thought it's going to be fine, um, and yeah. because of all the pre-work had meant that people in that office knew where they were going, yeah, into it. We we even actually had a, we let them have a goodbye party. So we let them have a good by-party to the old business, uh, all unofficial. So they, you know, felt it. They were doing it on the side, but actually, you no <laughs> know, we funded it. Um, uh, and that allowed people to sort of leave the old behind and sort of welcome the new.
0: So one of the challenges in, in, in any change programme or any transformation or any merger is
1: realising the benefits? I think you can look at this from two different levels. Um so one level I think is around just the individual, you know. So when you when we go through change, and um, an individual has to do something differently in order that whatever they do differently works with other people to deliver the impact that we want. Yeah. But I think we very often forget that that personal transition is so key because it's uh, and I you know I to riding a bike. You know it's it's hard. It, it's brave. But people are yeah. doing that, and um, you know in front of their colleagues with new technology or new skills in front of a client or new whatever it is. So I think. Um, Helping people through their personal transitions is absolutely key to delivering the financial numbers that sit on the you know, on the um, The other thing that I've always found key is moving from the design work within your transformation into testing, um, into piloting, and then implementation with full participation of, of teams. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and by the time you get to piloting, actually giving the ownership of monitoring the impact and actually the ownership of monitoring the progress at implementing the new ways of working to the piloting teams. So whilst you might have central resource overseeing or supporting, you actually give clear amount accountability to the people who are delivering within their bit of the business, what is then gonna be rolled out also. Yeah.
0: Then
1: you mimic that as you go to the full on implementation. So again, you, you, the accountability, you push it as locally as possible and you push measurement, of progress, and impact as locally as possible. And then, of course, you monitor it. You know, you'd be all over, is it, is it working? And you jump on it when it's not happening. Um, but but it's about accountability. And, of course, yeah. you can only do that if you've designed stuff in the right way and you've designed the implementation in the right way, but that's that's why you bring people in as you're, as you're, as you're doing those, both those things. Does that answer yes. your question? Yeah,
0: yeah, it does. And, and it, again, it reminds me um, of... I can't remember who it was who used the analogy uh, because it's a good few years ago. Um, But they um, always talked about uh, people being like a spring. Um, So if you're not if you're not driving that accountability down to a local level and really supporting them and helping them, naturally, as as you push it, if you if you're not there to support them and 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 make sure that you know if 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 they're struggling, you're there to, to, to 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 ensure that they go down the right path, the spring will automatically come back to where it was before and start to go back to how they used to work previously. Um, So if you haven't got that localised accountability and that localised management, it's very, very difficult for anybody to lead across a a, a large organisation that that the amount of change
1: required to deliver the end end result. That's a great point. I think also just your reference to leaders is really key. I mean, one of the things I found One of the features of most big transformations is that the people who are leading your teams aren't comfortable where you're going, Mm. because they just can't be. You know, they've been doing something else for 10 years. Um, So how you help leaders see what that future is, understand it, but also recognize where they need help. And that might need help in, they might never need to do the thing that's coming, but they need to be able to talk about it or describe it or support others. Um, So I think actively, one, getting real commitment around leaders. From leaders to where you're going is key because very often yeah. we think we've got it but actually you haven't got you haven't got it and there's this continual barrier because you end up trying to you, you end up thinking that you've got a sort of connection in the business but actually there's a couple of key people are saying yeah let's just carry on the way you were really yeah it's a nice thing no. but just you know just do what you did on for the last Thursday um and, he, and you only move them forward when they participate in the change, but actually when you help them go through the shifts. And, and sometimes the coaching of those leaders is quite raw because actually they are very exposed. Agreed.
0: And 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 the, the one thing
1: that um,
0: is easy to ignore um, is to ensure that their KPIs are changed as well. Because uh, I've been involved in a number of programmes in the past that have gone wrong and I've got brought into sort of Look to recover them, um, and the you know the change, change the change leadership team did everything right. They did all the communication for all the support But you were asking someone to do this when they were being measured by this, uh, and uh, and they'd not change the uh, you know they'd not change the performance measurement for the individual to align it to the new the new ways of working. Nice. So the, the 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 managers were being sort of pulled from pillar to post. You get
1: the excuse, you get the excuse, oh yeah, but we set the you have set the objectives of the year so we can't change it. Yeah. But we're changing the business. <laughs> or, or you find that the KPIs are changed within the little bit of the business where most of the change is happening, but not in operations or not in yeah. finance. So you've then got these, you know, crunchy points where the different functions can't work together well. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's like any change in it, you've got to
0: look at the end-to-end change because there's the there's, be ripple effects all the way through the
1: business. You need to understand those ripples. Gotcha. And, and that's why you, I say you, you need to bring in that finance person, even if they're not involved in the, the new client-centric shift that you're driving, because mm-hmm. something that they are doing is going to be monitoring these people or measuring it, whatever. So it's key to be looking at all angles.
0: So some of the programmes you've been involved in have been quite big programmes, you know, multi-year programmes. I, would you going about maintaining the momentum? You know, you, you were saying earlier, you, you start off getting that real momentum and then, and then driving on the uh, engagement. But on a multi-year programme, how,
1: how do you go about driving that momentum and maintaining that momentum? That's a hard question, isn't it? Because more often than not, that momentum doesn't happen because the next big thing comes along. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. The, um, so the, the client engagement model I launched must be 10 years ago now is was up until about a year ago still in place um, but it had been through a number of rebrandings right. um, and i think to maintain momentum you've got to be clear how long you're going to put the real pressure on you know so they this launch this particular thing you know we had two years where we, we were on it sort of creatively right. managing its central team but then it needed to be owned by the business, but there still need to be some form of connection, some form of building the thing that we we're doing into the strategic priorities. I think that the moment the strategic priority working on suddenly become less strategic or just or just accepted, yeah. you start to lose that. Um, I, I, I don't have a magic answer other than you've got to keep it front of mind. You've got to keep it important for the leadership. You've got to keep tracking the impact of whatever you're doing. Um, but ultimately, you can't, as new initiatives come along, as, as the organisation goes through a different change, you, you can't cover everything. I mean, mm. where I've seen this done most successfully is where the narrative around the change that you're driving uh, retains a central core, yeah. and then it evolves over time. But you yeah. take what you need to forward, you allow some things to drop because actually you have moved on, um, but the narrative that you you run with leaders and teams across the organisation allows you to, keep on top of the things that have got to be driven and, and again it comes down to leadership if it drops off the leaders list it drops it drops off everybody's list yeah agreed
0: and i think um, the, the the one one organization that did it really well um that i can remember is they they were very clear about about the vision and the long-term vision um and what it meant to everybody but then they put us um a road map in place almost that, was a, that, that outlined a series of programs, initiatives, um, and they, they, they then managed each of those, not independently, because there's there a the overriding sort of program control and management of it. Um, but from a communications perspective and from a engagement perspective, it was a series of activities um that you could get your your initial sort of drive momentum and then embed and then you get another one in embed and then you get another one uh, it was all outlined in a an overriding sort of roadmap um and and that i've tried to use that a few times and and um it's uh it's an approach that seems to go down reasonably well because it, love- it just breaks that sort of three four year program down into nine twelve months
1: i like activity. that a lot and and um and- and uh, when you're in, I'm thinking, you know, two, three, four years is where we've got to get to. I think one of the things is being honest, isn't it? So I, I worked on a, a transformation where, um, from day one, the conversation that I was having with the CEO was there's a lot of people out there who are just waiting till you move to your next job because they know you're only going to be in this for a couple of years. Yeah. So, and they're literally just, and people will tell you that. They'll tell you, yeah, we've just got to do enough to get through the next few years because then management will change. Yeah. So if you plan for that, if you go no, we're going to push, really hard to move you now but also we're going to recognize that when leadership changes we glued down enough and are committed to enough that it's going to carry on rolling um yeah. and i actually had a, an md of a it's actually a large german business turn around to me and said yeah well yeah you got us in the end but you know for two years <laughs> we, we did try and just like just ignore you but you know in the end you, you got us and we had to move the whole business
0: yeah i remember um one organization uh, about 15 years ago i was working with um and one of the mid, mid, mid managers came in and said, well, you know, if we keep our head down long enough, you'll go away. And the next initiative will come along. And that's what we've been doing for the last 15
1: years. So why are you any different? And that was the challenge
0: almost on day one.
1: Yeah. And if, you, if you've got that as a starting point, you know, you know where the bar is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So to, to finish off, then we, we, we always have one final question. What's the one thing? you feel is an essential for successful delivery of any
1: transformation so i we've talked about having a great vision we've talked about personal transition we've talked about roadmaps i think it's to do with roadmaps i think when we the one thing that really matters is that people can see not just where you're going but the steps that are going to take the organization there. I, we're going to build one of these we're going to integrate this we're going to and then the steps for them and that means for you, you're going to have to learn some of these skills, you're going to have to drop these skills, you're going to have to. And then the change starts to become real because they can see forward, they can see expectations, um, and they can start to believe that those stepping stones are actually going to take you to the transformation. So, irrespective of project plans or great ideas or big strategic shifts, simple clarity on the steps the organization is going to go through and the steps that the individual goes through to get to that future place I believe is so key and of course they then drive some of the activities that you you do. Now a perfect way of
0: of ending and and brings it right back to that people-driven change agenda. I
1: was trying not to use the words I'm very glad you have. (laughs) Brilliant thank you very much Richard. Brilliant Tony thank you very much.
0: Once again, Richard, thank you very much. A great way to spend 40 minutes um, in your company, discussing your experience around change and transformation. Richard is an active member of the Transformation Leaders Hub, a place where people operating in project programme change and transformation can come together and develop relationships and create collaborations and just get to know each other and build your fear group. Um, so if you haven't already checked it out, check it out today see the link in the show notes. With that, once again, thank you very much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks time on the next show.